0: This episode is brought to you by Left of Boom. We empower leaders to respond to crisis proactively and with confidence. What an unprecedented year. I apologize to all my listeners on crisis talks for being quiet over the past few months. However, I've been directly supporting clients through events such as the bushfires, a global cyber attack, and now a global pandemic. We are facing a societal reset that will force us to adapt to a new normal. In this, the second series of Crisis Talks, I'm calling on business owners, risk professionals, safety professionals, entrepreneurs, politicians, government and emergency services, anyone with an idea out there that they want to share to come and join me on the podcast. We want to use this as an opportunity or a platform for people to share ideas how we can work together to get through this. It's time to mobilise our collective minds to combat this world pandemic. G'day ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the series focused on coronavirus. In episode one, I'm speaking with Jason Jarrett. Jason Jarrett is an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia in risk management. He's worked in the risk and continuity space for a number of years, and has been through incidents such as Ebola, mad cow, H1N1, and other crisis events around the world. Jason shares some unique insights that we can apply to the coronavirus situation. The parts that I really enjoyed in this episode were when he was talking about optimism bias, about how to manage uncertainty, and when we really delved into his Buddhist beliefs and talked about his mantra and how he applies that on a daily basis. So whilst you're in isolation or whatever you may be doing around the world, please stay safe, look after your family, and stay connected. Ladies and gentlemen, today I've got a real honor of introducing you to a really good friend of mine who's been in the resilience and the business continuity industry for for a number of years. And uh, I did some work with originally about 10 years ago, I think it was Jason, back in the Rio Tinto days. For the benefit of everyone here, Jason's been a real practitioner in this space over a number of years, based out of the UK originally. Uh, He's now based over in Canada. Uh, He's an adjunct professor uh, teaching about this sort of work and in particular, Jason led and was part of the responses to things such as foot and mouth when business continuity plan was first really kicking
1: off. cow disease and then there was the foot and mouth disease and then yep. two strikes on that. And then yep. we had the, uh, H1N1, um, SARS, MERS. There was quite a few potentials. You know. Actually, and it's been interesting this week. I've been thinking, I've had several kind of thoughts about... Uh, a memory of being in a building working for the government in uh, England and uh, I can remember the wallpaper and everything and I was was looking at the WHO statistics for H1M1, Mm -hmm. it was a standard kind of table and I was looking, I was kind of putting numbers into a spreadsheet thinking okay well I could create my own graph that way and I could, it would look a bit smart if I had to go because i had the spreadsheet open to me i changed it from a 0.1 mortality rate to a 0.2 and then i saw the number change and i thought if i did that just for this city just this one small city in the united kingdom if i changed it from a 0.1 to a 0.2 the mortality rate that's just a very large number what's the treatment for it so i kind of went through a lot of kind of elementary learning By looking at that stage, and I calculated how many intensive care bed units there would be, and there would be more needed for the city than were available in the country. Right. And I remember thinking, oh gosh, we really, you know, hygiene and care and all of these things are so important to keep these things down. But I never for once imagined we'd be looking at some of the numbers that we're looking at now. Never for once
0: yeah I think it's um, you know the the, the terms hard, unprecedented
1: well, it does I mean because it, in typically in our business, if we do our job properly of what we do is that nothing happens mm. so that's a hard thing to spend money on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hard thing to justify,
0: but i think uh <laughs> really I think right. you know, I think a lot of people are cracking out business continuity plans are sitting in crisis management rooms at the moment working through these problems i think are are really starting to realize the benefits. Of the work that they've put in in, in preparing for these sort of things. So, or not.
1: Or not. Yeah. It's, it's all too common the case people think they're prepared or believe they're prepared. They like to think that they've agreed something. I call it the watermelon management approach, where you have the red, amber, green, and everybody tells you it's green. You know, everyone yep. tells you it's a problem, but each management layer tells you it's greener than it was before. <laughs> Is <laughs> green until you ask one or two questions about it, and you actually discover it's red all the way through to the middle. Yeah, there are a lot of reasons for it. I mean, I think even back, Martin Bax, I think was talking about strategic misrepresentation. Mm. I we call it corporate lying. <laughs> the academic word for it is strategic misrepresentation, and then we've all seen the optimistic bias, which affects everything.
0: Yeah. 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 And I think an optimistic Sorry. bias has really kicked in in Australia. It's colloquially known as the she'll be right attitude, which saw thousands of people congregating on Bondi beach last week, which were amazing scenes to watch when we're,
1: when we're seeing facing um, we're watching, pretty we're we're watching, at a pretty unprecedented pandemic. I saw Bondi beach, but I mean, the same is true in Brighton this weekend in England, the same is true in Scarborough and other beaches and other parts of the world. California, even in Florida, just people believing it's going to, it's not going to happen to them.
0: Walk us back through Ebola, mate, and your experience that happened over in West Africa.
1: As you know, um, I I mentioned the other night, I was on my way back from London on a plane and I, while it was hot in my mind, once uh, my activities with the Ebola had come to an end around 2015, I'd written my notes down and things that I thought were important and uh so the first one I've written down is how important it is to have a clear strategy mm. a, a short durable overarching statement of intent mm. something that is you can repeat that's easy to repeat something that's 140 characters or less something where you've got your clear aim so that everybody can repeat it everybody knows if they're not working in that direction they shouldn't be working at all yeah and so having a clear strategy helps everyone focus. And I think what I've, I'm really wanting to see is a clear strategy from, from leaders. And I think uh, the Andrew Cuomo briefings have gotten kind of better and better, but still trying to see what the strategy is so that you can get some kind of force and unity behind it. I haven't seen yet. How,
0: how did you see that come into play in that situation for the Ebola outbreak? I mean, was it, was it the same sort of uncertainty early as what we're seeing now? Or was it the same sort of advice? Or it yeah. seemed that people were sort of more galvanised to, to the problem or, or oriented to what the problem was there
1: at that point in time? A number of different things. There was a lot of corporate attention focused on the problem at the time, mm. uh, on the area at the time because of the investment made, because the amount of work that was required to try and yep. get off so there were a lot of detailed, focused industry groups on looking at what could be done to, to make the project happen. Yep. So against that background, and, and at the same time, a lot of organizational change, you know, when this happened, uh, we first started to get the automatic notifications, as you know, from different source providers, you know, international, yep. SaaS, CRGs, start yep. to kind of send their notifications and i'm looking at these numbers and i'm kind of accustomed to seeing a boiler now and again for the last 15 20 years or so these numbers were quite big and i remember thinking that's big mm. that's a big number uh, two or three days later the number was even bigger and i thought this is something that i have to raise so you know you raise it in the in the weekly it comes up on the weekly uh, conversation in the risk team and and starting to discuss it and, and saying i i believe this isn't this is going to be a a coming issue so yeah and that started to kind of from january to february and then they started to feel it on the ground in before we did obviously mm. Mm. so the, the the press was coming from the site upwards and it was coming yeah. from yeah. corporate downwards so i think at that point we met in the middle and and tried to you know, work with the right people to put in a structure in place mm. could manage the incident and also the perceptions around the incident. So, for example, normally having a one crisis management team at the site and maybe one, having yep. one at the corporate headquarters would be enough. Yeah. In a situation like this, where there are perhaps more than one operation involved or more than one department or more than one group involved, more than one part of the world involved. then how do you mm. bring, things together in a coordinated vertically integrated approach and Mm. that you know identifying that and establishing that structure and publishing it very quickly and widely and broadly so you haven't got duplication of effort because what people do in a communication vacuum is decide that nothing's happening so they need to do something so (laughs) don't tell the team in Australia that something's happening so the Australians think they must be doing something the guys in London are too lazy to do something or the guys in Montreal you know, they think that everybody else hasn't got it together. So before you know it, you've got 15 teams that are all representing the same company. So yes. you, know, you do need to kind of communicate very yeah. quickly what that structure looks like. And also the structure for, you know, how you're going to communicate what can be said and who can be said and what is the chain of authority for agreeing and, and having that beforehand rather than making it up on the day because we've all been there when... Really important information that has to go out by nine o'clock in the morning, and it's still in conference at four o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, no, that feeling for sure, mate. We've been,
0: been, in, I've been involved in a in, in a crisis response effectively since the outbreak in China, uh, rolling into a cyber attack here, uh, which is a global cyber attack, and then off the back straight into COVID nineteen again here in Australia. So, I know exactly what you're talking about around those communication challenges, particularly on a global scale. How did you guys go about resolving that in this Well, one thing I think states?
1: I would say we did really well, which was we copied a government protocol of having a single source of information on something. Yep, yep. So we had a name for this file, and we mm-hmm. called it "Crip," but you can call it anything you like. But this one file, and each person, that saved, the aviation expert is responsible for updating the aviation section. Mm-hmm. Each person is up responsible for updating the safety section. And then everybody in the company can look at one document and go to the safety section and see what's the latest on this, what's the latest on travel. So having one common place of information is really important to people because you've got to be operating off the same intelligence picture, the same information. You can't have people deciding different policies and different approaches. And whilst it sounds very attractive and very flexible, what it leads to is a different standard of response and care for different people and an inability to be able to provide the appropriate level of corporate responsibility to support it. You
0: yeah, you're talking about the biases that exist, the optimistic bias, and, and the like Oh, they there. change
1: with appetite. They <laughs> change with that. Well, what's really interesting is in time and time again, so for example, towards the end of that incident, and there's a lot of things I could talk about that is probably inappropriate, so I'm not going to. <laughs> the end of one big particular incident that we've already talked about, you know, towards at uh, one point, um, and nothing had actually changed on the ground, but what had changed was the financial pressures and the desire to kind of get things moving. Despite the fact that the strategy was to protect people, and we did back then, we, you know, we pay, paid people to stay at home to take care of their families.
0: The yeah. Focus
1: on washing hands. We, our, the whole program was around asking people to take care of their families and reporting statistics and helping with, with soap and cleaning and toilets and washing hands. That was the whole focus. Yeah. So, for example, you know, one of the tasks would be to build a railway across this place and no railway existed beforehand. Mm. So actually, there had to be a lot of community negotiations and conversations and surveying work to be able to go, how much work is involved in building a railway? So and, and that had to start and there was a certain sequence of activities for that work to start and it was programmed. And obviously, it was going to cost a lot of money to delay it and or to get rid of it or to stop it or to change it. Yeah, and, yeah. What I, you know, nearly every project plans on the basis of if everything goes according to plan, mm, yeah. to what is most likely to happen, you know, because if you write most likely is to happen, then every project would have and the, the 46% um, more budget than it normally had, than it should have. <laughs> and it would have <laughs> if it was planned properly, which is why every project overruns by 46%. <laughs> honestly. We could save ourselves a lot of heartache by allocating the right amount of money in the first place to the risks available. Mm-hmm. So, because when people plan, if everything goes according to plan, then they get stuck into this budget that they're stuck with. So, what happens if that? Yes. Yeah. You know, and I fully understand it and I understand the pressures. But I also understand that we started off with a strategy to protect our people and to everybody involved, and our customers and our suppliers. And that was our strategy. Our strategy was not this. Mm. we're not mm. going to be able to do that. But so in order to be able to fulfill that wish, if you like, even the broadest terms, therefore we would need the following additional protocols. It needs to be done by helicopter. It would need to be yep. done for this period of time. It mm. needs to be done with additional health and safety people. It would need to be done with decontamination procedures. It would need to be done at this rate and so on and so on. So it, need, it would need this level of risk support to be able to go into that community and do something reasonably safely you know but really if you're going to do it and therefore it, it costs five times as much so yeah. you can still do the work but it costs five times as much so you can't yes. say to people you can't do the work but you can do the work but it has to be done under these conditions if you're going to keep this strategy so maintaining mm. the strategy is number one do not change the controls mm. if you not change your strategy yeah yeah you know what I mean what, what are you doing
0: yeah so exactly. I mean, I think that's I, no, really
1: really important, and I think sometimes it's also important to once you establish a strategy, either change a strategy but don't change the controls once you've established what a strategy is
0: I think that um that there's an expectation in these instances that things are going to drop off very quickly, you know that we're going to be able to return very quickly, and that those controls won't be required in that instance there. Was there always these questions about the time impact and, um, and how soon you'd be able to get back to normal? What was the sort of pressure to get things back to, into, into normal, both at the start, during, and, and even sort of at the post?
1: Well, what is it that we want to achieve? What can we achieve in uncertainty? You know, once you understand that, then you're not waiting for the world to change around you. You're working with the world that you've got. Yeah. Uh, This comes back down to strategy, right? You can have all the tools and all the assets in the world, but if you don't have a clear idea of what you want to achieve, then you don't know what's important to you. Yeah. You can't make the most of the people available to you. You can't make the most of the tools or the plans because you don't know what you want to achieve. So, I mean, I I think in these situations when people are kind of saying, when's it going back to normal? When's it going back to normal? I cannot believe at the moment, I'm listening to the briefings from the White House, and I'm hearing this kind of focus now on needing that the cure is going to be worse than the, than the, than the problem. And yeah. almost like there's a kind of a whole kind of and get back on the streets movement the, like within hours of trying to get people off the streets. So it's a, and the, the lack of integration between the strategic direction and what's happening locally, that lack of vertical integration, I think is really hurting people. You've got got to have that structure very up and people have got to know what they're working with because people like regularity, they like familiarity, they like to establish a battle rhythm, you know, they Mm. like when they're going to call, who they're going to call, they like to be able to kind of know, you know, what the chain of activity is as opposed to operating in something where they clearly thought there was going to be organisation and there's, it doesn't appear to be manifest.
0: What we just spoke about there was that sort of, you know, people like that familiarity or they like that routine and and rhythm. Some
1: people park their car in the same place every day. Yeah. They have the same thing in their sandwiches or their lunchbox every day. They sit in the same place every day and they're really, really good at what they do. But if you take their parking spot, they freak out. If they run out of that flavor of cheese or that flavor of Marmite or Vegemite or that flavor, whatever, they freak out. People, some people like familiarity. Most people like to be told what to do. They like to know where to, uh, a regularity so they can build their life around it. And so most people don't like it when you shake the bucket and they're not presented with the same car parking space or lunch break, let alone the idea that you might not get paid next month or you might not have a job or might not have a home or, but then again, other people are saying, well, you might not have to pay rent or you might not have to do this or you might not have to do that. So in all of that uncertainty, it creates so much worry, and without a single place to go to ask the questions, it becomes more and more problematic, and without a means for the organization to take feedback to find out what are the concerns and what are the worries for people. It's quite interesting that in this incredible country with so much technology, they're not really able to kind of uh, get a feedback of what people are feeling and being able to kind of anticipate and use the information that would easily use in an election to manipulate people. They could use the same data and use the same information to be able to kind of motivate people into more positive behaviors. It doesn't seem to me like it's as, as integrated. It
0: doesn't feel like it's been mobilized. Yeah. Yeah. We're sort of facing the similar issues here there's a national cabinet that's been established where a, a federation model. So the, the federal government, has certain jurisdictions that they can support and, and manage and certain things that they can manage um, uh, in these types of crises. But they are also then heavily reliant on the, on the states that, um, that have their own jurisdictions, the police forces, for example, here, um, the education systems are all handled here in the states. So we have this sort of disparate, this disparate advice that's going on at the moment where at a federal and a national cabinet level, which involves each of the state premiers, they're saying, well, we want to keep schools open because it's, it's a risk-based model. It keeps the emergency workers at work. It keeps the essential services in operation. But then at the states, um, some of the states have taken their own decision around shutting down, but still saying that it's aligned to the overall model. Have you seen the similar sort of issues over in Canada? And no. what was the same sort of model that you saw or issues that you saw during Ebola as well?
1: Not really. I mean, to my fellow Canadians, if I misrepresent this, I'm, I'm just trying to characterise my experience of how it feels, how government mm. Yeah. And what it seems to be is a strange, um, uh, mo- uh, strange mongrel between British democracy, French democracy and an American slash Australian democracy. So, cause you have a kind of a federalized approach, but a monarchy. And mm. so you have provincials that operate a little bit like States, but more kind of aligned unified. I think generally I would say, yeah. Um, but some of them are far disparate, just like in Australia. Some are really out there, very remote locations. It's the second biggest country in the world, you know, yeah. and most people live within 300 miles of the border. Hmm so it crosses four time zones so very very similar but I, I think one is our remoteness may have helped us but time will tell we've there been a lot of testing early on it's still happening but i know the local um hospital needs surgical hats i know mm-hmm. everybody's going to be in, in the difficulty thing i i think generally um whenever i've been out people the supermarkets have marked the floors around mm-hmm. here so that the are queuing you know, when people are lining up yeah they're not, they're not behind each other same um, thing over here yeah some people need a bit of reminding you know the people to go into default mode when their headphones on looking at their phone oblivious to the universe around them <laughs> I, think I did have to there was a girl that was right right up behind me and, and and i just i turned around twice and the third time i had to say excuse me and i put my hand as if i was going to move it towards her and said move back now <laughs> and she kind of was embarrassed and then saw where she was and then kind of let back. And I guess, you know, those kind of behavioural things that people have learned over years that we like having people near us, it's hard to hold people at distance.
0: Has the government communication been over
1: there from your perspective? Excellent. I mean, one thing is we have the photogenic uh, premier, you know, with the with Justin Trudeau, you know, who yeah. looks like stepped off gone with a wing. You know, <laughs> um, <laughs> How much does that help,
0: though? I mean, how much does that help, do you think, I in think this? So, you
1: know, so, so. I, I think having a young, vigorous leader, I think um, it, it certainly helps. I think mm. a, Whatever your politics, I personally support the guy. And uh, mm. I think it's great having somebody who's appearing at the same time every day with quite a good briefing. Yeah. I think there are lots of things we've got to understand, just because similar to Australia, but in proportion to the country, we're a very small population of... 31 million people 32 million people and we've only got so much money so and and an economy that depends upon the US yeah so I but I think within the means of what we've got and with the spirit of the people I think I'm seeing most people certainly where I live people have been self isolating pretty much for the last week um I'm really proud of University of British Columbia um I teach there and really quickly within hours of making the decision about two and a half weeks ago three weeks ago i guess the university made the decision to close the doors and um all staff effort was spent to immediately make available everything available through technology yeah and my son is a student there and i know he's doing his lectures and exams i know all of that is continuing i know that i'm attending on collaborate listening to defend the thesis and and I, <laughs> they've done it. And I, hats off to them. I think UBC done a great job, considering the time turnaround. And mm. still in midterm, I think it's phenomenal. So, yeah. yeah. And I hope this can be enough. And certainly my son's quiet. I know he's reading. I know he's busy. So, yeah. It's fantastic. I think they want to meet their friends. I think that's something that here's an interest. I think as a parent, I mean, we're both parents. Um, yeah. My son lives with me. So we had a conversation the other day. Uh, uh, Get real conversation, and uh, the conversation went along the lines of, "I'm really looking to see my mate on on Monday." I said, "That's great." I said, "Take a toothbrush." He said, "What do you mean? (laughs) Because you ain't coming back for two weeks." (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, self isolate. Yeah, exactly right. (laughs) What was the answer? So I'm sorry. Simple well, thank you, son, you can come back, and kill me, and then you've got to live with my body in the flat for two weeks. So it's yeah, actually- not- <laughs> <laughs>
0: unfortunately it's uh, uh as we've seen though, the um, the jokes aside, we've seen obviously the, the real challenging circumstances that happen in Italy with um, with the, well, the I mean, decisions having the- t- to be made.
1: I mean, we are lighthearted because we work with this thing quite a bit, but mm-hmm. nothing light hearted in what we're seeing at the moment at all. No,
0: and I mean, you you saw this also. You also saw this sort of firsthand with the bowler, though, too, mate. So, what were some of the real lessons that you learned around the preventive said, measures, and then also said, in the response? You
1: know what? Just to tie off the last bit, it, mm. you know, we agreed, you know, that people have got to maintain the strategy through to the end until the situation's resolved. You can't start, you yeah. know, do be going back to work again. Yeah, and if you do, then you've got to be able to have the right conditions. In which case, it's going to cost five times as much. So why are you doing it? Yeah, and what's really driving it? So let's mm-hmm. take away some the drivers. Oh, travel control. One really great thing about being a large organisation was being able to call the travel provider like American Express or someone like that that organises mm-hmm. and travel for large organisations, and be able to have our relationship with them completely integrated. So mm-hmm. that we can say mm-hmm. the only person you can issue flights to is somebody who has these following pieces of certification. Yeah. So then when you've got people trying to undermine the system and booking directly, they can't <laughs> book directly because they, yeah. forms. And anybody yeah. applying to it flags to me every day, who's trying to get out of the country. And therefore they've got to give me the business reason why they need to be in that part of the world and what they're doing. And then I think, okay, they haven't, we haven't communicated properly. So, then by the time the team meets in the evening, we say, okay, well, these are the questions that are coming up. We're clearly not communicating here. So, we need to strengthen this part of the communication section tonight or for today. Yeah. So, the yeah, one thing yeah. about the CRIP was this documentation, it was so valuable, this mm. source of information that it was updated often every day. But the front page had where the where the updates were, so you weren't having to consistently scroll through 400 pages or 300 pages. Yeah, that made it very very useful. Then, obviously, as things kind of calmed down, we got our rhythm together. It became once every three days. Mm -hmm. became once every week. It became one central place so that everybody could go to that easily. Anybody who had a stakeholding or a rights holding into that issue could open that document and see. We're making the decision about aviation based on this. We're making the mm. about safety based on this. We're making the decision about the business based on this. So there's no, no rumors. Everything yeah. Is. How is it organized? Organize, organization chart in the background. Have we got the best graphics department in the world? Yes. Okay, let's put them to purpose. You know, make me an org chart that looks really great. <laughs> <laughs> I think <laughs> you're your strengths, you know, because people really want to help. Yeah. In situations, everybody wants to help. Everybody feels powerless. and If they can do one thing, they want to put their whole heart into it. And if it's making a poster, then make a poster. If you can find another way to get people to wash their hands, find another unique viral song, pardon the pun, but if you can find another way to get people to wash their hands, do a prize giving on who's come up with the best idea to get people to wash their hands or to clean the room or to do something. Mm. Mm-hmm. Where can we reward innovation? Where can we do? And I found that the constant thing was trying to find new ways to tell people to wash their hands and not get bored of it, not get the, <laughs> of the message. And that's yep. the hard thing at the moment because people get accustomed, acclimatized to risk so quickly. Yeah. Another, another 10 days of this. Could you do another two months of it? <laughs> Three months of it. When you're
0: planning that sort of timing factor, how did you how did you sort of think about, it or how did you start to attune people to the to the duration that you're going to be dealing with?
1: I mean, that's uncertainty. Going back to the uncertainty thing, how 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 long before we can be certain of the information? Yeah. Well. Well, in particular, in Ebola, if you remember, in the early weeks, the WHO website fell over. It wasn't possible to get all the information straight away. Mm. It was was very difficult to pull together a single picture in those first three or four weeks of when it started to ramp up. Um, And then they started to realize that everybody's hitting that website. And I think it's possibly one of the bigger kind of web explosions that happened to WHO was when Ebola started to pick up media interest and and I think they had to change their strategy and re redo how they were going to do their updates, redo how they're going to talk to the public. Yeah. Um, so I think in, in that level of uncertainty, you can say, okay, well, how long before we can feel things are certain, we've got a certain amount of experience in the country. Mm. Uh, We know what the circumstances are going to be. If we stop everything for this period of time, what's it going to be? You know, I mean, I mean Africa is a different situation to talking about our own societies here in terms of transposing the lessons, you know, trying to estimate what's happening here. It's, you can only go on the basis of knowing that historically these things happen in more than one wave. Mm-hmm. We, um, we know at the moment, based upon the, the world's experts and the modeling, that the earliest estimations of a peak for the United States are, are more to do with May and June. I really mm-hmm. hope not the case but if that is the case then we're talking about trying to restart operations and how do we safely restart operations how do we safely bring people back into the workplace i mean mm-hmm. taking other lessons for example um we're after the japan earthquake and we've reopened the tokyo office and that's patrick murphy was a had some really great ideas about that yeah which is deciding what are the conditions necessary for it to be safe to go back to work. What are the triggers necessary to go back to work? And if Mm -hmm. we talk about a risk matrix, you know, like a four by four or five by five, if if we had a risk matrix of our current situation, where are we on that risk matrix? Are we towards the red or are we towards the green? What does going towards the red mean? And what (laughs) does that look like? And if you had a little description in each one of those boxes, you can kind of say, well, which box do we want to be in guys? And how much effort is it going to take? To get into the box we want to be in. Yeah. Hmm. There are things that we can't control at the moment. I saw copper lost 25% today. I uh, see oil at $20 a barrel. I mean, are things that are going to be moving and fluid and dynamic, tangible. What do we want to achieve in this time? And what can we achieve? Yeah. And what yeah. can we do safely that's not going to? I mean, I feel sorry for other mines, perhaps, who are in more remote locations. Uh, sites who caving doesn't stop for disease um -hmm. you know there's potential of losing you know all bodies if it's not done so those guys are going to carry on working and then how do you work in a high risk environment without hospital cover you know that's yeah that's predisposed to something else so there's some interesting challenges and uh, but let's let's everybody think because of this this could happen and if that happened because of this but stay within the realms of not going mad. But I think it doesn't yeah. take too far to realize that this is an 18-month situation, that most people at the moment don't know how things are going to unfold. And um, in that uncertainty, what can we do? I think we have to be able to, uh, certainly my thoughts center around, we have to be able to sustain payments to the point where creditors will totally understand it's unreasonable for you to do it not to default Mm. and i think as the days go past and as government announcements get made and as things happen things will unfold But i think it's really important not to worry too much about things that are going to be changing really dramatically even things that we thought were permanent i think you know may be subject to real change
0: i think we're going to face a new normal i've been calling it a societal reset and it's probably nothing like we've seen since really World War One. What what opportunities then does something like this present?
1: I mean, it really does depend on on how things how well things are managed. To a certain degree, the demographic affected, um, what will that do for wealth redistribution within families? Mm. What will that do to a lot of drivers at the moment in a lot of parts of the world is real estate, you know, mm. often at the moment. In cities like Perth, for example, I know the real estate market is just on fire as it is in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. But what is the consequence of losing quite a lot of people from a certain demographic? I don't know. This is one event. Yeah. What could it? Could is this the, the new norm? In terms of will we ever be the same about personal hygiene after this? Will there still be the three-second rule? <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, I mean, I, I, think, I think there's a, yeah.
0: Which could be, That is brilliant. We could see the death of the three-second rule now globally. Right. Yeah. yeah. Is that a bad thing? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I grew up in it, and I think it made me quite hard. But you know, Doesn't but it build resilience? <laughs> is that what it's meant to do? <laughs> that does some good, I think
0: mate I, I want to talk about I mean and I'm comfortable if you don't want to go down this path from here, mate. but um no, look, I know I know that you do a lot around spirituality and yeah. and I think that the difficulty we're facing now is that as we're in social isolation, how can we stay connected, how can we stay connected with each other and how can we stay connected spiritually? What, what sort of tips would you give to people out there about about maintaining their own personal well-being, their personal, Welfare during these sort
1: of difficult challenges. Hmm. Well, uh, as you know, I'm a Buddhist and uh, my prayer and the prayer of Buddhists is to promise to bring out the best in yourself and the best in everyone around you. And that nobody can avoid problems, not even saints or sages. If 80% of the people in Canada are living to their maximum credit, that's everybody. It's not just you. If you're feeling difficult, you're feeling bad. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. in that position. Um, I think that the prayer to bring out the best in yourself and the best in everyone around you because of your circumstances has to be pretty strong. So I think, you know, having that intent every day, I think it helps. I think this is also a time to be something that makes you a better person. And whatever that is, science, geography, history, something intelligent, something to feed your brain at the moment, I would strongly, strongly recommend anything by Bent Flyvbjerg if you're in the risk business. Uh, mm-hmm. Bent's been writing these books on on mega projects and risk, and I found it absolutely fascinating. What was his name again? Sorry, Bent Fleebjerg. F L Y V J E J E R
0: G. Right. Well, I'll, I'll put that up on the podcast. <laughs> Rather than, yes. there's, a, yes. there's
1: a dictionary is the editor of the Oxford dictionary of, of mega projects and Risk, but it's the actual thinner book I found was essential reading for, for people in our business. Just fantastically well Well it. Wow. Um, I'm reading about planning ethics at the moment as well, which is very, very interesting and kind of, so I think it's very important that we read something to make us better. Yeah. Cause we always yeah. promise we're going to, we always say we haven't got enough time. Well, everyone's got time now. So find yeah. something intelligent to read. so spirituality, reading, I think that's really important. Find some time to encourage at least three people every day. Yeah. Because if you and if you if you're hacked off, then read something positive, you know, do what make a prayer or a determination, whatever it gets into you, and then call three people again and keep doing it. It's like three legs of a of a stool. You know, because you're making you're making the cause to encourage other people. You can't help but feel brilliant. Yeah. Can't help it. Try 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 to prove me wrong. It absolutely works. (laughs) Then finally, I think it's really important, and I feel slightly smug about this, um, is to find some kind of exercise routine that really helps you. So whether you do meditation or prayer, read something intelligent, encourage three people. And I would say some form of exercise. So the exercise that I do, and I have lost 60 pounds since I started, is yoga. So I use a a program on the Apple um, iStore. It's called Glow. And there's a subscription model. And it is fantastic. Um, It's filmed really well. They've got thousands of different uh, styles, thousands of different people. Um, You can do five minutes. You can do two hours. And I, I have to say, I think it's brilliant. So I can do that. In, I've been doing that for the last few years anyway. Um, it's, it's nice to do yoga at home sometimes and go to the studio. And i just do yoga an hour and a half a day and I just keep the weight down, keep the carbs down, and uh, and just realise that we're into this for... This is a long thing. This is not something that's going to be over in a few days. This is a big thing. This is a big thing. It's, uh, it's really
0: um, poignant that you say those things because... I've sort of had one quote that's been sitting up on my screen for the last few days. And that's one of Albert Einstein, which says the measure of intelligence is the ability to change. We're being forced to change, to try and innovate and and change the way that we're doing things. I think if we don't adapt to, to this new normal, then, then we're really at risk.
1: I mean, to emphasize that, I mean, I saw a quote this week from somebody, I can't remember who, I think it was in the Guardian. And um, it was talking about, for those people complaining about working at home and not being productive, it's helpful to remember that Isaac Newton uh, was out of the city in the countryside because of the Black Plague and he (laughs) He documented gravity. So I think, considering the profundity of what gravity did to the rest of science and civilization, might be the, the worst time and the most perfect time. Human beings perform really well when they're cornered like rats. I have to say, you know, when people are under pressure and most men, women often perform well without requiring any pressure whatsoever, but men, they perform well when they're cornered like rats. They've got no other choice. than you start to be really creative and throw your whole heart into it. So let's see what happens. I'm quite excited.
0: Mate, that's uh, that's a perfect time to to close off our interview. Jason Jarrett, thank you so much for, for sharing some of your insights and your thoughts, both from what you've been through for your own experiences in risk and resilience management, but then even more so from the spirituality side too. So Jason, thank you very much for
1: joining us on Crisis talks. Books. Thank you Grant, and thanks for everything that you did.